Welcome to the Diversity Church Podcast. This is Pastor Jonathan Ember. We hope that you would just take a moment and listen and receive the Word of God. We know that one word from the Lord can change your life. And so we hope that this message will bless you and transform you in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody. How many of you guys know that Jesus is alive and he's speaking today? Come on, give him praise in the house. As we're talking about some revelation, I just want to give those a greeting who are watching online or at our North Campus, and just welcome those who are in the house today. Welcome to Diversity Church, where we are different people, but we have the same God. So we are looking at the book of Revelation, specifically the first three chapters, and we're discovering what Jesus has to say to the church in general. All right, He writes a letter, basically he's telling John to write a letter to seven major churches in Asia Minor. And out of these seven churches, we really have a complete message of what Jesus is really saying to the church in general, even the church today, almost 2,000 years later. And so we've been looking at these seven churches, studying these cities that these seven churches are in. So today we're going to look at the third church that Jesus mentions in the book of Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the church in Pergamum. Uh, if you have some translations of the scripture, you might actually see this as Pergamos or Pergamos. Um, it's the same city. It's just said different ways depending on the vernacular. In this city of Pergamum, man, at this time when Jesus speaks this word to them, this is a buzzing city, uh, a buzzing city that is a, a major metropolitan city at this time. This is just about 50 miles northeast of Smyrna that we talked about last week. So really, they say basically these seven cities are on the mail route, the Roman mail route of this area. And so this is the reason why even uh, John from Patmos, this island when he's in exile, is actually sending it also to these seven churches because it makes sense because they're on the route of the mail route. But this city had so much going for it, and it was, again, buzzing, major city of its time, uh, so much so that they had a 10,000-seat auditorium. Um, it was an amphitheater, and it was built into the hill, and um, even to this day, in ancient world, it holds the record for the steepest amphitheater in all of ancient history, 10,000 seats. So this was a major area with major things going for it, like a library as well. There was this library that compared to Alexandria that it could hold 200,000 parchments. So this thing was a beast of a, a library as well. And then they had all sorts of ornate and beautiful temples to all sorts of different gods. And so this church that Jesus was speaking to had to live in an environment like that and live for Jesus in an environment like that. And this is why then Jesus speaks to them this word that we find in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. And it says, And to the angel, which we've learned in this series, is to the pastor. Because angel means messenger. Okay, and that's what it means. So there could be an angel from God, literally from heaven sent. Or it could be me and you as an angel. Come on, somebody. They called me when I was young, Johnny Angel. Hallelujah. I'm a messenger, somebody. I'm here to tell people good news, all right? So to the angel the pastor of the church in Pergamum, right? This is Jesus speaking. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Come on, he is a king and judge. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Check that out. He's telling them, like, I know where you're at in Pergamum, and this is where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. He gives them a commendation, a, a blessing for what they're doing. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan 
dwells. What we're finding out in these letters is there was a lot of persecution at this time, right? There's people that are giving their life for Jesus and he's commending them for holding to his name and holding on to his name during that persecution. But verse 14, I do have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, which I will explain later, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Jesus doesn't like that, so he is actually bringing a correction to this church. Verse 15, so also you have some too who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which I will explain later as well. In verse 16, therefore repent. What a word, right, for the church. What a word that we don't actually hear too much in the church anymore. If you're doing some stupid stuff, stop it. Repent. Change your mind. Turn directions. Go the other way. This isn't good for you. Therefore, repent. If not, here's the king and judge again, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know about you guys. I don't want to wage war against Jesus. Nina here at our campus this morning was singing, all hell, King Jesus. He's fought a million battles and never has lost one. The sword of his mouth does not lose. That sword of his mouth will judge both the living and the dead at his coming. That is not something you want to mess with. That is not something you want to play with. You do not want to stand on the other side of Jesus or else you will be humbled and you will lose. Even if you're Justin Flanagan and you win at everything can't fight against Jesus and win, right? And so he's telling them, repent, right? Because there's some things that he had against them, all right? So I want to share with you three things mentioned that are in Pergamum, three things found here in this city and even amongst this church. And I want us just to learn some lessons about living among compromise, all right? I want us to learn some lessons. How do we live among compromise? If we find ourselves in compromise, if we're around compromise, how do we live like Jesus was telling them here in the city of Pergamum? All right, let's look at the first thing that I want to mention that is mentioned or found here in Pergamum. It is Satan's throne. Did you find that interesting? That this is saying that Satan's throne was in this city. Now, I don't know about you, but like, uh, if you read about read the scripture, we know that uh, Satan is roaming around and we all feel temptations. We all experience certain things that we would call the enemy in our life. Matter of fact, even in Smyrna, they said that uh, Jesus said that Satan would cast some of them into prison. But this is a different terminology when he mentions here in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's a little bit different. Satan is everywhere, right? Like we know that his angels, the fallen angels are everywhere and they're working everywhere. But this is something different when you see Jesus pointing out that this is where Satan's throne is. That verbiage throne actually could be compared to what we would say today is a dad chair. Any fellas in the house have a dad chair? Come on, somebody, right? That place where you sit. That is your place. That is your throne. That's where you hang out. That's where you feel comfortable. That is like your spot in the house, right? That's kind of what this is saying, that Satan felt so comfortable in Pergamum. This is where he felt like he could relax. There wasn't that much fighting against him. There wasn't that much that was causing him, causing him stress. This is where he could sit back, relax, and enjoy what he had built over the years. What he had built over the years in this city was all sorts of strongholds related to idolatry, 
sexual immorality, all sorts of false gods, the occult, witchcraft. It was very prevalent in this city. So even when the church is there in shining light, Satan doesn't get that, that tripped up about it. He's like, hey, I'm cool. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to sit on this throne. But how many guys know that Jesus, again, will always have the last word? And this time, at this city, the occult was very strong. Satan's throne was pretty much intact in that area. But Jesus' throne is higher than Satan's throne. Come on, somebody. His throne and his name is higher. Over the years, many years after this, Pergamum no longer was that place where Satan's throne dwelt. Earthquakes, influence of Christianity, all sorts of different things came and defeated so much of that stronghold in that area. I don't care where Satan feels comfortable when there is a living church with a living name and the living savior behind them. I don't care what devil and what demon or what stronghold is out there. They're not as strong as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Come on, somebody. Amen. But during this time, this is the environment the environment of the occult, the environment of idolatry, the environment of sexual immorality that it was even found in many of these places where people would worship all sorts of other gods. So if you were in this city, and especially in the church in the city, you would be confronted daily with all of these gods and people that were worshiping all of these gods, gods like um, Dionysus. If you study who this God was in their time and in this city, he had a temple that was so crazy, and this God was such, a, a, I would say, a wild God, and I'm saying that with lowercase g. This is the God of revelry. Uh, he was the party God. Uh, he was the God that if you go to his temple, this is where you got turned up in that day. This is where you would go to drink, to get drunk. This is where you go to party. This is where you would go and you would just like while out even having orgies and other crazy sexual and moral things as you would go to this place and you would turn up. If you would go to this temple, it was what like we would say today is if you go to Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And they would go and they would worship this God, Dionysus, in this city, in this temple. And they would turn up. They would just go crazy. They would revel and party. And they would do it all in the name of Dionysus. How many guys know that Satan's tricks and his tactics and those thrones that he had in this city as a real throne? How many guys know that those things still exist in our day? Those idols that we would bow down to, that they bowed down to, and even influence some of the church that we're going to talk about later. Uh, how many of you guys know that those same idols, those same demons, they're still existing today? Sometimes they exist at the club. Sometimes they exist at the bar. Sometimes they exist whenever we're putting any other thing, especially revelry and partying and, and, and debauchery and all that kind of stuff before God. Matter of fact, even if it's in our life as a Christian, it should not be, right? But we're influenced by this type of idolatry, even in our day, even though we're not going to a real temple and bowing down, we're just doing it at a bar, we're just doing it at a club, right? But this is the lifestyle, and the, even the temples that were around them in that day, they had one even to a god named Demeter. And this is the goddess that could guarantee food on your table and a good crop at harvest time. And so people would go there because they would want their work to be blessed, and so they would go and bow down to this god and give offerings to this God named Demeter, and she's the goddess, like I said, that could guarantee you success in your work, guarantee you food on your table. How many times do we actually put work, even in our day, and make it an idol, 
because we put it before God. We put it before our family. We go and bow down to it because we're wanting good food on our table or success in our name, right? You could see the influence of this God in Pergamum, but you could even see it today in Indianapolis, Indiana. You could even see it sometimes in the lives of believers when we bow down to work. We bow down to things that would make us successful. We bow down to all those things. You could look in this city. There's all sorts of different gods um, like Trajan. Now, this is one of the emperors of Rome. And at this time, this was a Roman cult. Uh, This was a, a imperial cult. Because if you belong to the Roman Empire, what they told you over and over and over again was Caesar is God. So this was a temple built to one of the Caesars. And that basically you would go and you would worship because you would recognize that if you were a part of this Roman Empire, that Caesar was going to take care of you. That Caesar was going to meet your needs. That you would go down and you would worship and you would thank Caesar. <laughs> You would thank Caesar, his statue. You'd worship before him for giving you everything that you had, the roads in the Roman Empire to get to and fro, the work that they would provide for you, all of these different things that were responsible in your life because of the government. How often do we worship under that same throne today when we think that that president who's up for election is our savior? Where we think if we vote for them, this is our answer, savior of the world. And we're so wrapped up in politics. We're so wrapped up that we actually listen to more talk radio than we ever have read the Bible. Right? We're not going to a literal throne and bowing down to a real idol, a physical idol. But how often are we doing this when we look to the government as God in our life? Right? There's all sorts of idols that we all deal with. It wasn't the same as it was in their day because they had these real temples that they would really go down and bow down to. But then you have this temple that was mentioned in their day to Zeus. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, this is like the God of gods. This is like the Lord of lords. And in this city, Pergamum, this is the biggest temple, the most ornate temple, the the biggest altar to what they would consider outside of Caesar as the biggest God, right? And they would come and they would bow down to this Lord of Lords, this King of Kings. And this was such a significant thing in their culture because this God Zeus sometimes would require human sacrifice. If you didn't bow down to him and even the other gods that were underneath him, You could even worship all these other gods just as long as you acknowledge Zeus as the king and the Lord. If you did not do that, you could actually be put to death because Zeus, the the one who would sit on a cloud and judge people with lightning. This is where we get a lot of our views even of our God through Greek mythology. Come on, somebody. We don't need to study Marvel and Greek mythology or anything else to understand who our God is. We just need to open up his word. He tells us plainly who he is, and he's not some dude sitting on a cloud with a beard and a lightning bolt ready to zap people. Amen? He's way bigger than that. (laughs) But the people of their day, they would think Zeus is the answer. And they would be concerned if they didn't worship him because, again, he would threaten them with physical death. So much so that at this altar, what they would consider, most scholars say, is what they're referring to as Satan's throne. 
Satan's seat is on this, this altar of this temple to Zeus. Why? Because at this place, at this altar, they would kill many people, including Christians, including Antipas. Did you guys read that one? Did you guys remember that when I read that in Revelation 2, verse 13? It says, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Look, where Satan dwells. So most scholars and even tradition goes on to say that Antipas was killed on this altar of Zeus. And the way that he was killed, I'm going to show you a picture that's going to frighten some people. The way that he was killed, you can put up this um, picture if you would. Um, I want to show you guys the way that he was killed is on the altar of Zeus was this bull. It was a copper bull. And you guys can see that there's an opening on that bull's back, right? They would stick people inside of that opening and light a fire underneath that bull. And underneath that bull would be this fire that would warm the bull so much so that it would cook and literally burn somebody up to death as they would be laying in there. This is how tradition says that Antipas, Jesus' faithful martyr, Jesus' faithful servant died on Zeus's altar, on Satan's throne, essentially. He was put into a bronze cow and was burned and heated up or even cooked to death. Why? Because there was another God greater than any other God. Oh, you can worship Jesus, but he needs to fall in line. Y'all, I don't know about you. The Jesus that I know says every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess to him. He says you can't serve two masters. You serve one God and one God only. You're not serving any other gods. You're denying any other gods and you're putting me in that place. I am supreme. That's the position that I hold. I've created everything. And for you to worship anything in creation outside of me is idolatry. The early church understood this. People like Antipas gave their life for this. So though in this city is Satan's throne, so much so that he feels comfortable because he's dominating through all these other gods. You had a church that was standing up to that and saying, no, I will worship only one God and his name is Jesus. Church, we need to get back to that place today when there's all sorts of idols in our life, when there's all sorts of compromise in our life, when we're bowing down to so many other things outside of Jesus, we need to remember the martyrs. We need to remember our faith. We need to remember the costs to follow Jesus. He didn't say it would be easy. He didn't say it would be all good and finding and dandy. He said in this world, we will have troubles. We will have trials. He said this, though, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Come on, somebody. Even the martyrs are going to have a reward at his coming. We read about it last week, a crown of life. Antipas, even though he denied Zeus and denied these other gods and was burned to death in that wooden or in that in that copper bull. He stands before Jesus' throne now and he's crying out and he's worshiping him and he has a, he has a mark on his life as a martyr and he's going to be rewarded for eternity as a result of this. But this is the place where Satan's throne was, where he dwelt. And you see that obviously through all of this occult practices, but you know what's wild? Satan's plan, the way that he's worked has really been the same kind of throughout the centuries after he uh, fell from heaven and was cast down to the earth. And you see this actually through the same temple 
of Zeus many, many years later. Let me kind of give you a little bit more of the history of what happens in Pergamum. Like I told you, around 400 or 350 or 400 AD, this city that was once booming begins to suffer again from an earthquake. How many of you guys know that God will rise up whoever he wants to rise up and he will break down and cast down whoever he wants to cast down? Everything we have in America is a blessing from God. Let's not get it twisted. If we depart from the truth of his word, if we depart from worshiping the one true God, it's only a matter of time before any kingdom falls, including this area, right? And so anyway, they begin to disperse and it begins to be not even a town anymore over time, all right? All these years later, let's fast forward to 1864, there was some archaeologists from Germany that comes down to this region of Asia Minor. And he begins to try to excavate different things. And he comes upon Pergamum. And he sees that this altar of Zeus was pretty much still intact. Of course, it was over time, had uh, ground and, and dirt and all sorts of things around it. But they excavated this altar of Zeus, what is considered Satan's throne. And from 1864 to around 1930, they excavated this Satan's throne, the altar of Zeus, and brings, they bring it back, or bring it to, I should say, Germany, right in time for Hitler and his rise. They rebuilt this throne, they rebuilt this altar of Zeus, and they put it in what they now call the Museum of Pergamum. I want you to see this picture. I want you to think about how just as Jesus has been moving throughout the centuries, how Satan has moved throughout the centuries. That is, that is Satan's throne. That is the altar to Zeus that has been reassembled and it was reassembled and finished in 1930 around the same time as Hitler's rise to power. This connection between Hitler and this altar, Satan's throne, is really creepy. If you look at Hitler and his story, he had all sorts of occult-like practices and all sorts of things that he did to, to really summon demons. And no wonder why, again, he had the influence and the power and the evil that came from his life. But one of, his, uh, one of the people under him actually used this temple as motivation for Hitler's grandstand in Nuremberg. And this is where Hitler spoke and actually said, we're gonna kill all of these Jews. The same place that Pergamum said is Satan's throne. Make no mistake about it. Satan's lies, his ways, his plans have been the same from beginning. And if you mess around with idolatry and you mess around with all sorts of things, maybe even sexual immorality, you mess around with the occult, what you're doing is inviting Satan to take residence and influence in your life. You can see that in Hitler. You saw it obviously at this time. I think we need to be warned as the church of Jesus Christ to make sure there is no idolatry in our life, that we are actually being warned and provoked to seek Jesus and him alone in our life. If we do that, Satan has to bow. If we don't do that, we're actually inviting his throne into our life. All right. So I wanted you just to see 
the influence of Satan's throne, the influence of Satan in this area of Pergamum. Let's move on to the second thing that I want to mention that was found or mentioned in Pergamum is Jesus's faith. Jesus's faith. So in the middle of all this compromise, in the middle of this city that is full of idolatry, sexual immorality, Jesus gives them a commendation. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny, look at this, my faith. What else is found here in Pergamum? Jesus' faith, his faith, his name, even in in the days of Antipas by faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in the middle of idolatry, church, In the middle of this occult practice right here in Pergamum, you find believers that are holding on to Jesus's name. Believers that are practicing Jesus's faith. People that are not denying his name. People that are not compromising in the midst of pressure. And I want you to think about how hard that would be. And we can understand this to a degree, although none of us are actually practicing our faith with the, with the warning or the, um, the pain of having to give our life literally for Jesus, at least right now in the United States. But it still is hard, right, not to compromise when everybody else around you is worshiping other gods, when everybody else around you is going to the club, where everybody else around you is watching things, talking about things, doing things that you wouldn't do in your life. Maybe those in your workplace or those in your family, they don't bow to Jesus. They're bowing to everything else. Maybe to some other idol, maybe to some type of agnosticism where they don't, they don't necessarily believe in one God or, or the God or maybe atheism, but they're bowing to something. And so when you're around them and you're doing life around them and they see that you're going to church and they see that you're reading the Bible and they begin to make fun of you and they begin to talk negatively about you or you just don't have many things in common, right? How many guys know that that's tough to be in an environment like that? Now imagine that times 10 when they're in this city, these Christians are in this city where everything is this polytheism, these many gods, and everything around their culture is going to the, temp, to, to the temples and worshiping all of these idols. Yet these people in this church have to hold on to Jesus' name and face the ridicule and face the slander and maybe even face death as a result of it. Guys, what we learn from this church and Jesus' words to this church is that if they can follow Jesus and not compromise in their day and in this city, what excuse do we have in our day and the freedoms that we have even in our city? I know it's tough. I remember when I first started following Jesus and I didn't make any new Jesus follower friends like what Justin was trying to tell you all we need when we're joining small groups and the reason why we need those relationships. I just didn't have that in the beginning of my walk. And I was actually going to a very small church and there was no other young people at that time. And so, you know, I remember feeling lonely and I'm trying to follow Jesus and I really gave him my life. And you guys have heard my story. It was a very uh, like night and day scenario, 180 degree turn where I really began to submit everything to Jesus, but I was lonely. And I remember one time contacting my buddies from high school and we decided that we were going to hang out. Well, guess what? They weren't following Jesus. And so I was trying to tell them and trying to talk to them about the Lord and the things of God. And they really wanted nothing to do with it, right? 
But I was lonely and I wanted to hang out with them. And so I remember they were like, hey, let's watch, um, I think it was a Tom Green movie. And I don't know if y'all know who Tom Green is. I hope you don't, uh, because he is very vulgar and stupid and many, many things um, that are not good for a Christian's life or a Christian's soul. And so they were like, let's watch one of these movies. And I don't even want to give you the name because I think I even remember the name of this movie, but it is that bad, even in the name, something that I just shouldn't have been watching. Right? And I knew this even early in my Christian walk that this wasn't for me anymore, but being around them. And this is just a simple little compromise, but it still was compromised based on the pressure I felt to cave in to those who were around me. I decided I was going to watch this movie. And then later on, because I have the Holy Spirit and so do you, you get that voice inside, that little correction inside saying, hey, you probably shouldn't have done that, Right? And here's the reason why, especially at this time, I don't want to invite any of that crap into my own soul. Come on, somebody, right? But here's even another reason. I can't change what I'm conformed to. If I'm trying to lead my friends outside of their lifestyle, the way I'm not going to, the way I'm going to do that is not participating in their same sin, but showing them a better way, right? I'm not saying I can't go where they're at, But if I'm where they're at, I shouldn't be practicing what they're practicing. I could go to those temples and be around that just as long as I'm not bowing to Demeter. Just as long as I'm not bowing to Dionysus. Just as long as I'm not bowing to Zeus. I could be around there and telling them, wait, wait, I got a God who's greater than Zeus. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I got a God who gives us more satisfaction than than Demeter or, or what Dionysus could. I got a God who will provide for your needs according to his riches and glory. And you don't have to sell your soul. You just have to receive his grace. We, we could do that. But the moment where we are around them and we're letting their compromise impact, and we're letting their sin impact us to the point of we compromise in our walk, there's something wrong there. We can't change what we're conformed to. They're just going to follow and we're just going to follow the deeper sin that they're in. We're not going to bring them out of that. And so you can see the pressure, right? The pressure of this early church not to compromise in the middle of all of that. And Jesus actually calls them out and he says, you guys have held fast to my name. You guys have practiced my faith. What a commendation. And I just want to encourage some people that have been struggling in your family. You've been struggling in your workplace. And you're wondering if God sees you. You're wondering if you really are doing something that is worth it in the end. Can I tell you that Jesus sees that? And he commends you for it. Keep on going. Keep on following him. Keep on seeking him. Keep on finding him. Keep on bowing your knee to him. Keep on living a life of no compromise because Jesus sees it all. And one day you might make a difference in one of those friends' lives. But I love how Jesus mentions this, and I want to point this out before I go to my next point. He says his faith. This is the reason why I entitled this point, Jesus, his faith, Jesus' faith. You would think that this would have said, when he says, some of you guys did not deny my faith. You would think it would say, you did not deny the gospel or you did not deny faith in my name. I think it's really important to point out when he says my faith, 
how important it is to understand that this thing called Christianity is not made up by man. Nor should we submit to man in this thing. This thing belongs to Jesus. And this is his faith. Not something we make up. Not something we could just mold or change. Not something that is of our own power to compromise. This is his faith. So how he says his faith should go is how we should practice faith. Not just because culture says something. Not just because talk radio says something. Not just because TikTok says something. Not just because Instagram shows something. Not just because the politician promotes something. They can tell us what Christianity is all day. Even even pastors and leaders can say what Christianity is all day. But this thing doesn't belong to pastors or politicians or people in general. This thing is Jesus's faith. And we should practice it the way he wants us to practice it. Come on, somebody. Nowadays, people want to create a Jesus that suits them instead of worshiping the real Jesus. Can I tell you something? That's idolatry too. Some of y'all think, well, Jesus doesn't really care about sexual immorality. That's old school. Well, you're about to find out on my next point. Yes, he does. Jesus is cool with me going to the club and getting turned up, getting drunk. It's all good. Not hurting anybody. Oh, yes, he does care about that too. This thing called Christianity is not something you just make up the rules in. This is his faith. That means we should go to him and ask him how we should follow his faith. Anything less than submitting to Jesus's rules and his principles and his way and his ideology for our life is idolatry. It's compromise of his one true faith. And I see it all the time in the church. Thank God for people that are like these people in Pergamum, these followers of him that held on to his name, no matter the pressure, they held on to his faith in the middle of all sorts of compromise in their society. And they kept on with the integrity that is in the real Christianity. Can the real Jesus please stand up in his church? Come on, somebody. Can the real Jesus be worshiped? Yes, in 2022. When everybody else is trying to drag his name and drag his Christianity through the mud and make it seem as something that it really is not, can the real Christianity from the real church of Jesus Christ stand up and live a no compromise life? Amen. We see these, these early followers do that. So that was found in this city as well. But then here's the third thing also found in this city, found even in this church is compromise teaching. All right. So you have this Satan's throne and this idolatrous place, but then you have these Christians, many of them who would not bow their knee to anybody else and lived out Jesus's faith, right? But then you have compromised teaching that has influenced some of them. Compromised teaching that I think still exists today. Some beliefs that many of us have still believed and held on to like they did in this time. Let's read here in verse 14. Of Revelation chapter 2, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So evidently, not everybody did hold on to his name in the church of Pergamum. Evidently, not everybody did practice Jesus' faith. Many of them learned of and practiced a faith that was compromised. Teaching that was compromised. Compromised doctrine. That's what we would call teaching uh, in the church is doctrine. Doctrine we should live by. Things that we should do. Things that Jesus does say. This is my faith. This is my church. This is the practice of Christianity. There were people coming in to distort that. Like those teaching this teaching of Balaam. Now, you can find Balaam in your Bible. And this is the importance of Bible studies. This is the importance of Bible studies in your life. Like when you see something like this, when you're reading the scripture um, and it says something like this, uh, the teaching of Balaam, this is referring to an Old Testament teaching, an Old Testament experience where this guy named Balaam, who was a prophet, was called on by the Moabite king Balak to actually try to curse the people of God. Moabites, the Moabites, they wanted to defeat Israel. They saw them as they were leading um, out of the, the, the wilderness into the promised land. They already started seeing them defeat army after army after army. They saw that they were blessed. And they said, we don't want them to face us because the same God who's with them is going to beat us like he's beat every other army. So Moab, this king of Moab, Balak, called on Balaam to come as a prophet and curse the people of Israel. Now, here's the amazing thing about this teaching. One of the amazing things about this teaching is that Balaam could not curse what God had blessed. Now, I want you to understand this. As a follower of Jesus, you get all of his blessing. And you get the blessing of Abraham. Because he died on the tree, the Bible says. He says, curses everyone who died on the tree. That means all the curse that was on our life now has been transplanted or transported, I should say, to Jesus. And now his blessing has come upon you, his people. Awesome, right? So just like in the Old Testament when he called them out of Egypt, this was God's people and he blessed them and they were defeating all these other armies because they were blessed. Balaam goes to try to curse the people of God and he can't do it because you can't curse what God has blessed. But what Balaam then ended up teaching Balak is this, that if you can't beat them from the outside, if you can't curse them, Right? Because you can't just like tell God to curse them because he's already blessed them. This is what you got to do. You got to get them to stumble. You got to get them to compromise. You got to get them to sin. Because if you get them to sin, what they're going to do is live outside of the blessing and they're going to go back to the curse that they were under. So he tells Balak, listen, get all of your women, all the Moabite women, get them all. All right, have them dance provocatively in front of the men of Israel as they're about to come at y'all in war. And I want you to understand that if you could do this, if you can get them to compromise, if you get them to lust, if you get them to sin sexually, and, and this is something that Israel was not supposed to do, was join themselves to the women of these other gods. So this is exactly what Balak does. Balak has these women come out and dance provocatively. To the, to the men of Israel. And they end up sinning by having all sorts of sexual immorality with these women, joining themselves to them. And then it even further goes into idolatry. These women end up taking them to the gods of Moab. 
similar to what the, they actually called this uh, God, uh, Baal Peor. So it was in the Old Testament, you'll hear of Baal many times. There's many different types of Baal, but it's all going back to that same idolatry that Satan had set up from the beginning. He wants you to worship anyone but the one true God. So instead of just even just committing sexual immorality, these two things throughout the scripture are kind of linked. And here's the reason why it's self-service. The reason why these early Christians were even tempted to go to these other um, idols and these other temples is because they wanted what Demeter could provide them, right? They wanted what Dionysus promised them, happiness and fun and revelry. They, they wanted what Zeus would tell them is safety or what Caesar would say is, is salvation and provision, right? So out of selfish desire, out of lust in their heart, they wanted to go not only sleep with these women, but then get whatever their gods promised them, thinking that their God is going to give them something greater than the one true God. How many of you guys know that did not end well? There was a plague that broke out in Israel as a result of it, and many people died. Why? They were already blessed. But what they did is they let compromise in. So they moved outside of the blessing and started experiencing the wages of sin, which is death and destruction. Can I tell somebody that is listening to me today, that is watching this online, that is here in the house, Satan cannot curse you. But if he gets you to stumble, he can have his way with you. Jesus tells us how to live, and he tells us how not to live. If we choose to go outside of the blessing by living our own way, whatever that way might be, which all of it comes back down to idolatry and sexual immorality. This is the reason why the early church gave four rules to the Gentile believers. Guess what they had to do with sexual immorality and idolatry. Something that these Gentile believers, non-Jews here in Pergamum would have been faced with every single day. Not to go to these temples. Not to participate in that compromise. But just like Balaam taught the people of Israel to sin, how he taught Balak to get them to sin, to cast the stumbling block before them, there were people in the church of this day in Pergamum that was saying, it's okay. It's okay if we go to these other gods. Jesus understands. We still worship him, but we're going we're gonna to go and hang out over here and do these things. And so I'm, I'm assuming, just from the talk of this, that there were some people, hey, let's go to uh, the temple of Dionysus this Friday and get turned up. Who, who's with me? Y'all, y'all want to go? Don't act like that doesn't happen in church today. Y'all want to go? Like, there's a real party going on over there. Let's go have some fun. Let's go turn up. This is cool, right? Let's go and and eat the food that has been sacrificed to these gods and we'll pay for it. We'll go to that temple. We're cool with it. Paul said we could eat food sacrificed to idols only if it's not associated with temple worship. Meaning if it's in the marketplace and we eat it there and we don't know it was sacrificed to a God, he says our conscience is clear. But if you're going to the temple to participate in their idolatry, There's something wrong with that. But how many times is it taught by people? Now, this wasn't necessarily being taught by the pastor of this church, but it might have been taught by the members of the church. 
how often time are the members telling you something that is going to entrap you? It could come from a pulpit. God forbid it never comes from this. In Jesus' name, by his grace, it won't. Not from this pulpit. But it can come from somebody else that that tells you with good intentions that Christianity is this way. It's okay if you do this. God understands he loves everybody. But they're putting a stumbling block before you to get you into the curse, to get you to compromise, to get you to be influenced by all sorts of demons and pain from those demons in your life. We can't compromise, church. And that leads me to the second teaching that they all would have known and heard in this area as well that Jesus mentions is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The teachings of the Nicolaitans. In verse 15, it says, So also you have had some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have to do some study to understand what this teaching was all about. And I had done some study before, but this week I really spent a lot of time in this. And I I read some resources that were really important from some early church fathers. Now, this is extra biblical research, okay? And so we call this tradition and not the word of God. Because again, it's not Bible, it's not canon from the scripture, but these are resources that you can go to and look at some of the people that lived outside of the apostles' timeline. Um, and, And we could actually, like Polycarp, like we learned last week, who was martyred in Smyrna, we can learn from some of these guys. And so one of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, he says this about the Nicolaitans. He said, they abandon themselves to pleasure like goats. Leading a life of self-indulgence. Look at this. They're teaching perverted grace and replace liberty with license. Another name for, for Dionysus, one of those gods that they would worship, the god of revelry. The, the Latin name for him was liber. Which is where we get the word liberty. One of the common teachings, it's the same teaching of the Nicolaitans that is in the church today, is that you are free to do whatever you want if you're under grace. This is called perverted grace. It's a teaching that was obviously in Bible days. Some scholars like Irenaeus, Irenaeus, he says that the error from Nicholas or this error from the Nicolaitans come back from this this guy that is mentioned in Acts chapter six, who was a deacon, who ended up kind of leaving the faith and starting to teach things like this. That you can do anything you want in Christianity and that you're fine. If you believe that, that's something that you have learned along the way in your Christianity, I want you to know that is false teaching. That is false doctrine. That is not how you're to practice Christianity. If you invite the enemy into your life, he will have his way in your life. If you live outside of God's blessing in the way that he called us to live, it's not going to go well for you. This is why Jesus says in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You know how the plague was stopped when Israel sinned in Balaam's time? There was a guy who took one of the Moabite women into his tent 
in front of all of Israel and all of the people of Israel in the face of all of them, Moses and everybody. I'll live how I want. I'll do what I want. So he took this woman who he had no business sleeping with for many reasons because she was serving other gods and he was sleeping with her. He was about to do the act in front of them all, not caring. The way the plague was stopped in the place was there was a guy who had righteous indignation who took a spear and he literally shoved that spear through both of them in the act of sin. Guess what? The plague was stopped immediately. What does God think about compromise? What does God think about sin? He wants to slay it. He doesn't want to have to do it. He wants you to take authority of it, over it. And he wants you to repent. He wants you to slay that thing. He wants you to go and and literally say, I'm done with this so much. So he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And he doesn't mean literally, but he's, he's trying to give us an idea that we can't keep compromising. This sin is out to destroy you. So take a spear, take the sword of the spear, drive it through that thing and let that thing be where it belongs in death and hell.